You are listening to the Marketing Rescue Podcast, the weekly show where we take a look at some epic marketing failures, along with some pretty amazing brand rescues and comebacks. And now your hosts, Nico and Chad. Hey, Chad. Yeah. So you're a CEO or a president like yourself of a failing company with a steady decline over the last 10 years. It's your first day in the job. What do you do? Oh, man. (laughs) What a great question. There's so many ways that you could go with that. And obviously, it depends on kind of the company and what the situation is. But I think for most people, you'd start by looking at what costs you can cut if the company isn't doing well, and then start kind of thinking about, all right, well, where can we innovate? And how can we kind of take all the products and services that we have and really improve them, create something new? A new product, a new service, something game-changing. Some innovation. Yeah. Nice. Well, before I tell you a amazing story about a CEO that turned a big company around with Posty Notes, let's talk about how you're doing right now. Yeah. Maybe I should even ask you that. We both, <laughs> we both in a pretty bad spot with all the stuff going on right now. But how are you guys coping? You know, I felt like we just started trading less water with the coronavirus and then We've got some race rides going on. It's just crazy times right now. Yeah, I'm actually really excited for this episode because what we're going to talk about today is really inspirational. Yeah. It's a feel-good story. It's a story about people caring for other people. And we have been, I think, as a family, just struggling a lot with how to deal with what's been going on and how to really address racism head on and support our brothers and sisters in the Black community. And so I think just in general... I'm excited for this podcast episode because while it has nothing to do with that, it's a very inspirational story that I think we can all kind of take from and think about how we treat other people and how we care for those around us. Yeah, it's not exactly the Badoo episode that we did, right? (laughs) Right. Yeah, exactly. Which we both felt pretty crappy about afterwards as well. So yeah, 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 man. It's tough times we're living in right now. I'm just waiting to see what July is going to hold up. What's coming? <laughs> Every month. <laughs> this year is just oh, unbelievable. Yeah. yeah, it sure is. But anyway, we digress. So let's get started. We're going to tell a story today about Campbell's, the soup company. And Campbell's is one of the most iconic brands in America. And it was founded in 1869. They are headquartered in Camden, New Jersey. And they must probably have one of the most recognizable brands or logos in the whole world. The design of Campbell's soup hasn't really changed since 1898. Andy Warhol actually used the tomato soup can, as everybody's probably seen, to create one of his most recognizable artworks. And for now, that's like 50 years old, if you think about it. It's just crazy. In itself, that painting is a statement about modern American culture. Mm. And we're talking about soup here, right? (laughs) It's just really interesting the way that it became part of the American culture. So nothing is more iconic or a more iconic symbol of American progress in the post-World War II era than Campbell's Soup. Yeah, yeah, you're right. But by the 80s and the 90s, Campbell's was actually on this path of decline. Yeah, Sales were down. The market for pre-prepared foods was getting just really crowded because the microwave 
was changing everything. Conagra Food launched. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was a lot going on within yeah. consumer packaged goods and, and specifically within kind of pre-prepared meals. Yeah. You could heat all these things up in the microwave. Progresso actually starts to come out. And so now Campbell's has some competition from some really strong competitors that were just putting a lot of pressure on. And Campbell's was just really suffering a massive decline. Yeah. So by the early 2000s, Campbell was trying to reignite their brands and Campbell put their energy into a tighter brand presence and focusing on their core three brands, which is Campbell Soup, VA Juice or VA Juices and Pepperidge Farms Baked Goods. So I think this is like the key inflection point of today's story. They really invested into new leadership in 2001 they hired somebody with the name Douglas Conant as their new CEO. And with former strategy leadership roles at General Mills, Kraft, and Nabisco, this was his first CEO role. And he had a really tough job ahead of him. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of like the understatement of the century right there. Yeah, it was really tough. I mean, when he came on board in 2001, he's only the 11th CEO that Campbell's has over a 130 year history for a century, right? It's amazing. Yeah. So the CEOs at Campbell's tend to be well tenured is a very successful historic company who is now in very deep water. The company stock was totally nose diving. They were considered one of the worst performing major food companies in the world. Mm. Employee morale and engagement were just completely <laughs> in the toilet. So they run this employee engagement survey and find that one out of every three employees was looking for work elsewhere. Oh, yeah, it's toxic. Yeah, extremely toxic culture when he takes over. That one out of three number really describes an environment where employees, they're not motivated. They're constantly thinking about, okay, how can I get out of this organization? <laughs> What's the next step for me? And so things just became super political, super negative, the whole company had kind of this victimhood mindset. Everyone kind of thought it was a sinking ship and nobody was really excited about working there in any way. So in a 2012 article for strategybusiness.com by Art Kleiner, Doug Conant said, in the year before I arrived, the company had lost half its market value. It had gone from $60 to $30 per share. The leadership team had tried to grow and diversify in unproductive ways. The board felt a change was clearly needed. We did a survey of employee engagement soon after I arrived. For every two people engaged in the work, one was looking for another job. In other words, about 6,000 of our 20,000 employees were actively dissatisfied. I had been in toxic environments before, but they were nothing compared to what we encountered at Campbell. Getting back to the question where we started today, like, what do you do, you know, and just to make things even worse outside of the company, it wasn't just the company, it was actually the setting and the location as well during this time. So Campbell right. is headquartered in Camden, New Jersey. And if you haven't been there before, it's a very challenging area, especially back then. At the time, it was one of the poorest cities in America. It was plagued with violence and organized crime. Violent crimes were five times the national average, worth more than half of the city below poverty line. Just think about that. And 40% high school dropout rate. So, Oh, wow. This is where the physical headquarters was located. So these people that were working there had some issues outside of work, which 
you always have to bring with you to work, right? So it's just a lot of issues from all the way around. So the people had limited access to nutritional food, child hunger and obesity rates were skyrocketing. And the company Mm. itself looked like a prison. Like literally one of the employees told him when he arrived that the corporate headquarters were surrounded by rusty barbed wire And it's one of the most dangerous places to live in the country. There were numerous safety concerns for employees of just actually coming to work. Oh, man. Yeah, I mean, it's no surprise that engagement levels are so low. If you have all of the things that you're dealing with in your community and then you come to work and it's a toxic environment. Jim Clifton from Gallup said that they had the worst levels of engagement of any Fortune 500 company that they had ever surveyed. (laughs) right? Like that's how bad it was, (laughs) like the worst ever. No wonder it was such an uphill task. And because of how uphill that task was, people really just didn't think that Doug could turn the company around. Even some of the board wanted someone with more CEO experience. But to the board's credit, they really went through this exhaustive search and they knew they needed someone with not just the ability to drive financial performance, but somebody with a high degree of leadership excellence, and they felt that they had found that with Doug. So his experience at Kraft and being part of the turnaround at Nabisco really made Doug feel like he had what it was going to take to turn Campbell's around. So Conant was specifically hired to resurrect this once great American iconic company of Campbell's Soup. But as a first-time CEO... He's never really truly been in that role before, even though he's been in very high level positions. He was president of Bisco for five years. So how is he going to tackle all of these factors? Because this is a big thing, right? It's not just one thing that's driving the poor performance of the company. So how does he go about driving the company back up onto its feet? Yeah, you 100% right. So he focused on the company's assets, which is super amazing and and really smart. It's a very iconic brand, right? As we all know, Mm -hmm. he has a hugely skilled workforce, a very big giant consumer base and a ton of historical equity and brand loyalty and awareness. So those are the four components that he focused on. Yeah, super smart. So instead of doing what almost any other CEO would do, immediately diving into let's make huge cuts and let's try to fix the bottom line, He invested in making Campbell's a place where people would actually really want to work and where people would want to stay. So in a 2001 HBR article, Doug was quoted as saying, you can't have an organization that consistently delivers high performance unless you have a consistently high level of engagement predicated on trust. We needed to restore both trust and engagement. If we could do that, then we were sure the profits would follow. It's good stuff. He has a really good quote from him that was in fastcompany.com. And he said, you can't expect the company to perform at high levels unless people are personally engaged. He went on to say, and they won't be personally engaged unless they believe their leaders is personally engaged in trying to make their lives better. And that was his approach. Like he started like just leaning into that. He started leading by example. And I know that's something that a lot of CEOs say on a regular basis, but that doesn't mean <laughs> just cutting the ribbon in some park that they open up. Yeah. That means like he really took it to the extreme and led by example. And we'll talk a little bit about that in a second, but that in a nutshell was his approach to lean forward and putting people first. 
which is interesting about the story as well, he had to go against his own introvert nature. So he's an introvert by nature and he, he realized he had to be in the limelight to make his strategy successful. So so he realized he's going to have to change the way he was leading. Mm. And he had to be more visible. He had to be more communicative and he had to be more involved. And that doesn't mean activating his leadership. He needed to do it himself in order to activate his leadership. Yeah, which is a huge difference, right? Because at most companies, if you have something like employee engagement or culture, it becomes like an initiative. And then, you know, you set up a committee and then that committee goes and organizes some events and some happy hours. and, And they meet once a month. Yeah. Right. To plan out some activities or community service or whatever. Right. And he took an entirely different approach in that he really took personal accountability for it. So there's this cool quote in a Guardian article where he said, as introverts, we assume everyone knows what we're thinking, but people aren't mind readers. I had to go out on a limb and talk about my vision for going forward in an uncomfortable way. I needed to get out there and tell them that we were taking the company to higher ground. We were going to get the workplace and the marketplace right. I think every CEO needs to do that in a smart way. So he talks about introducing this concept of Campbell's valuing people and people valuing Campbell's, that he make this really big investment in the company and in the people. And then in turn, he wanted them to make a big investment back into Campbell's, but he had to show them first. And that was really difficult for him being an introvert to try to do this and communicate it. And he really was an introvert. Earlier in his career, he was told six months into a new job that he had actually relocated for by his manager that he should start looking for a new job because he was too quiet and didn't fit in. Mm. So he tries to fit in as much as possible from kind of that point in his career. He has this really nice nine-year run with General Mills, really enjoying his time working on Nerf sports and Monopoly. He has a couple kids, and he kind of like describes it's this amazing time for him working on Nerf and Monopoly, having little kids. Yeah, I can imagine. But then after nine years, he unexpectedly gets fired from that job. So that experience really changes him and kind of helps him to realize that he needs to be just way more purposeful with how he approaches his work and leadership in general. And that really gives him the lessons he needs to understand what to do next at Campbell's. Yeah, it's good stuff. So he basically, what he did is he focused on three different things, the culture of the company, the people, and then the community, all those different weighing factors, pulling his production and his sales down and his stock price down. He tackled it from all different sides. So first from a, from a cultural standpoint, he not only put people first, but he truly invested into the workforce. And he also took a really hard look at himself and his own leadership style, like you just discussed. And organizational cultural guru, John Kazakhsback, I hope I'm not butchering that, he describes him as someone who not only understood the importance of his own impact, but really understood how to make it really come to life with people around him. Mm. So from a second perspective is the people and leadership training. He personally ran, this is incredible, a leadership development course for two years. And he required his leaders to attend five sessions for up to three days each. Wow. Just think about that running a company. Yeah. And they had a lot of homework that they had to do and a lot of reading. And they had to get a personal coach to really work on their leadership style. 
I mean, I can think of a lot of the companies that I've been a part of and a lot of companies that I've interacted with. You can barely get a day to get all the leadership out, right? Oh, man, yeah. Everybody is swamped. And there would be, I can tell, a lot of resistance from people who kind of think, hey, man, I've arrived. I'm already in senior leadership. I am a leader. Why do I need this leadership course and submitting homework? Yeah. I'm an SVP. I'm a this, I'm a that. You fill in the blank, right? And I'm not going to do this leadership course and five sessions and homework every day that's like graded like I'm in school again. No, thanks. Yeah. But Doug really took this super seriously. He thought this was like super important. So he said that people would send in their homework and I would try to get back to them in 24 hours. It was the single most important thing I did. I wanted them to go out and lead in a more inspired way. How could we be a higher ambition company if we didn't have higher ambition leaders? And that was from a Forbes article. And it's amazing what we're talking about. I keep on having to remind myself that this is a soup company. <laughs> right? Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. you would never expect this level of innovative leadership. You don't immediately think of a soup company. You might think of a technology company or a e-commerce company. It was really interesting how serious he took to change the leadership and the culture within the organization, knowing that will drive sales in the long term. Yeah, it reminds me of this anecdote that I had heard about him where he describes when he first comes into the company, trying to get a handle on what's going on and what the strengths of the company are and, and how to kind of improve things. And he kept hearing people say, we can can soup faster than anybody else. Our line is so fast. We're the fastest in the world. And he would say, but shouldn't there be something more than that? And they would say, but no, you don't get it. Like, we're the fastest. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, mm, I think there's got to be something else that we can hang our hat on besides just having the fastest production line. That's not what really makes a company thrive. Yeah. So he really goes into this mode of, as a component of being a leader and demonstrating leadership while he's asking people to be better leaders, that he starts providing all these personal touches and personal communication. So he goes so far as to write 10 to 20 handwritten personal notes to employees at all levels of the organization. So this isn't just like, you know, people that he's on a daily basis in these executive level leadership meetings with. It's people at all levels of the organization to recognize people who are performing well because they are going through a difficult time, a time of change, and he wants to encourage the right behaviors. So let's listen to Doug actually tell the story himself. This is from an interview back in March of this year with Gary Vee. Adam, thank you. When I lost yeah, my welcome. job, my, ex my outplacement counselor said, you're going to be a horrible interview. You're too shy. You're too introverted you got to figure out a way to have a signature practice mm. to get a job. And he Thank said, you. figure it out. So I started, I'd come here, I'd meet 10 people. I'd get all their names uh, while I was interviewing. I would go to the coffee shop next door. I would handwrite a note to each of them. I would then walk it back to the coffee, to the front desk, give it to the receptionist, and say, could you deliver these today? I did that everywhere I went. Wow. And I started this Powerful. practice of reaching out. In a personal way, it doesn't have to be much. Receptionists had never received a personal thank you note in their life.
from somebody calling on the building. That's amazing. And so I started doing that, and then I went Powerful. to work at Campbell. And even in Campbell, which was hemorrhaging, eight out of 10 things being done were right. We had to make some real tough decisions, let go 300 of the top 350 leaders, <laughs> never been done in Fortune 500 history. At the same time, mm -hmm. we had all these people doing good work. So I started writing 10 to 20 short notes a day to employees. I was commuting two and a half hours each way from New Jersey down to Camden, from Morris County down mm -hmm. to Camden. I started uh, reading all the stuff that was going on in the company and I would write notes to these folks. 10 to 20 a day, six days a week for a decade. I was, when I was retiring, the person from Forbes said, how many of these, I'm hearing all about all these notes from everybody. How many notes have you written? I said, I don't know. So we did the math during the interview. We did the math and figured out just the Campbell employees. I'd written 30,000 notes. We only had 20,000 employees. Man, that's just amazing stuff, right? <laughs> Again, so many CEOs, so many leadership people will say that they invest in their people, but this is taking it a lot further than that. It's amazing. Yeah, I mean, 30,000. 30,000 most, <laughs> yeah. If you hop into YouTube and you just type his name, there's actually so many clips of employees talking about and showing the note that he gave them. And it like literally sparked them at a specific time in their career there. It meant so much for them. And, and a lot of them got multiple notes over a period of time. So it's just amazing stuff. So the third thing that he did was really think of the community of where the headquarters were. Again, Camden during the time was, was not a good spot. So over the years, companies actually left Camden, but he decided that he wanted to stay and he wanted to invest in the community. So he created a very ambitious plan to actually make the town of Camden a better place. Mm. He invested into the big picture, into the quality of life for people in and outside of work. And he helped employees feel happier and more fulfilled despite the state of the company and, and the town of Camden where they were at the time. And here's a really good quote. We have approached the challenge differently. We have chosen to get deeply involved in improving the well-being of children in Camden. So he focused on the health and nutrition of children. And he actually launched a project, a 10-year-long project, to half the BMI, the Body Mass Index, of 23,000 children in Camden. Wow. And this project's still going on today after he's you know no longer with the company. They brought nutritionists into schools and had Campbell chefs work with parents to serve healthy foods for kids at home. This is amazing, right? Wow, that is both beautiful and extremely ambitious. It's incredible, yeah. <laughs> he focused on things that aren't directly colorated to performance or an ROI of an organization, right? The culture, the people in the community are usually afterthoughts. They're the soft things that leadership usually drives into organization. They don't very often lead with it, especially in a failing company. That's usually like you and I worked for <laughs> right. a really, really good agency in Ohio for a long time. And the agency made a lot of money. So what did they do? They built a gym for everybody inside of the building with showers. And they, they really reinvested some of their revenue or their profits back into the organization, which then paid off for them, right? Yeah. He is doing that by leading with these things in a failing company, right? Which I think that is just so bold and so ambitious because you don't have an ROI per posty note. You know, you can't say, <laughs> I need to write more right. posty notes in order to drive up the stock price. He just really believed if he's going to make the culture better, he's going to make his people better and the community better. He has an underlying 
brand with a lot of heritage that he can just cultivate and grow into, which to your point is beautiful. It's amazing. Yeah. And one of the things that's so impressive is the determination and consistency in how we did that. Because to your point, when you're going into shareholder meetings and you're going to the board. All right, Doug, what have you done? <laughs> right. And yeah. it's it's 20 more post-it notes today, yeah. right? I mean, you'd have to resist a lot of yeah. pressure yeah. over a sustained period of time in order to really see this come to fruition and give it enough time to really blossom and become what you want it to become. And he did have kind of two primary performance metrics. And the first was shareholder return, mm -hmm. which he delivered big time. And then the second was employee engagement, which he significantly improved. And so he just maintained that level of consistency through everything that he did with the community. So getting back to what he did in Camden, one of the reasons why that was so ambitious and such a difficult thing to probably sell up to the board is, like you said, Camden was a very difficult place. They were really working hard to bring retailers back into Camden. At one point, the entire city with a population of it, I believe it was around 75 to 80,000 people, right. had only one supermarket. Crazy. To support that entire population, it was a massive food desert. And so they're trying to fix the BMI and health of kids. So they sponsor youth activities to increase physical fitness. They work with retailers to bring them back in. They develop local real estate to remove dangerous buildings and build developments to attract new businesses and new investments. And they cut their own carbon footprint in half, saving money and lowering costs and showing the community, hey, we care about our planet. We care about you. We care about the people here. And the combined impact is that there's a company that people are just so incredibly proud to work for and that they feel like showing up every day is assisting in building this legacy and building yeah. their own community. Yeah, and that's the exact opposite of episode four, the fake it till you make it, where we talked about the psychology, how yeah. employees will steal from a company if they feel they're being mistreated. And this is the exact flip side of that. Right, yeah, exactly. He wants to make sure that they feel the opposite of that so that they become super engaged. Energized, yeah. Yeah, and dedicated to the cause. So Doug just took on every single aspect of the company. Yeah, and it wasn't without any cost. Some of the people couldn't hack it or just didn't want to hack it for that matter. Yeah. So 300 out of the 350 leaders left within three years. That in itself is telling of how the leadership were comfortable in their declining roles with not having to step into the limelight trying to make their company better. Losing 85% of the leadership in just three years. <laughs> just think about that. Yeah. And for a company that size, it's huge. That is a massive change. Yeah. And at this point, a lot of people would have just seen this as a massive failure, right? Everything is showing that the stock price is still on the decline. Now, 85% of your leadership is left. But he chose to focus on the ones who stayed and on making them feel good about being committed to the company and their work. Yeah. And that strategy completely paid off. Campbell sales totally turned around. Profits grew for eight straight years while Doug Conant was CEO. They just generated amazing performance. And his philosophy that really made it work ultimately is that he believed that change was more than just 
one-dimensional. It's not just a simple answer. He said in a 2013 Forbes article that, quote, we need to reach employees on four levels. People need to make a living. They need to feel loved. They need to learn. And they needed to feel like they were part of something special and leave a legacy behind. Hitting on those four cylinders, we were able to create a very powerful culture. And that culture was able to express itself in economic value as measured by shareholder returns compared to other companies. But again, initially, this was really difficult to see. If you cut 25% of your workforce, you immediately see a jump in your EBITDA, right? You can see this movement right there. Right. The stuff that he was doing initially, actually the investments he was making in the community actually pushed him back a little bit before he started seeing the results from it. So it's just a really amazing approach to turn the company around through the soft things that is an afterthought with a lot of companies. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely right. And by the time Doug retired from Campbell's in 2011, shareholder returns were 64%. So that's That's five times higher than the S&P 500. That's crazy. And the Gallup Engagement Index has gone from one out of every three employees being disengaged to one out of 17 employees. And for reference, the Gallup is a world-class rating system for companies and the engagement with the employees. And they say anything above 12 to one is world-class. So they were running at 17 to one. And even better, the leadership engagement rating for Campbell was 77 to one. It's just amazing, right? Yeah. So contrast to his style of what we hear these days from CEOs of being out of touch with the workforce, just think about all this, how engaged he was. Here's another quote from him from Forbes. CEOs must lead from in front. We have to behave a way to be more credible. It's not what we say, it's what we do, right? So the whole old saying, walk the walk and don't just talk to talk. That's literally what he did. This is a case study of just that. It's just amazing stuff. So that brings me to a question, which is, can anybody do that? Is this leadership style appropriate for every company? Yeah. Could you do exactly this type of rescue, this brand rescue at a technology company where innovation is at the forefront? Could you take the soft things and try to inspire your culture and your community? Or is it specific to him and this company and this circumstance? It's a very, very interesting philosophical management question. (laughs) Yeah, and I think certainly there's aspects that can apply to any situation. But in everything that I've seen from Doug and his materials, he talks about the importance of not having a one-size-fits-all solution and being flexible with how you implement because as a leader, your leadership style is very much based on your life and your life experiences and what influences you've had as you've kind of grown through your career. So it's impossible to prescribe a one-size-fits-all approach. You have to do what works for you and for your company. Yeah. But that being said... I think there's a really valuable lesson here from a marketing perspective that engagement matters and that internal marketing 
is oftentimes just as important, if not more important than external marketing. Yeah. I mean, when we started putting this together, we were saying, hang on a minute, this is not direct marketing rescue content, but it's a brand rescue. And he was doing internal marketing, to your point, right? And I think marketing and brands are so intertwined with one another. If you tell the story about the brand rescue, you cover the marketing aspects or vice versa. He was just focusing, to your point, on the internal PR and making his internal customer base, his employees, influencers, basically, to activate his naysayers. And it, man, what did you say? Five times the S&P? <laughs> it definitely yeah. paid off. Yeah, yeah. And I think the key to this whole thing is that it was truly sincere. This wasn't an initiative. This wasn't a committee. This wasn't delegated. He led by example, and he recognized that relationships with people are what builds that strength. And so that was the core focus of his marketing, I guess you could say. It was, it was relationship marketing. It was word of mouth, very direct one-to-one. And he really believed that leadership wasn't kind of like this destination that to be a good leader, you have to work at it. So this is a common theme that we have identified in rescues and comebacks is a level of humility to understand as a leader that you haven't arrived. There's always something to learn. There's always things to work on. There are always ways to get better. In fact, there's this really cool quote from Doug where he says in one of the Forbes articles that we found that there are two common leadership styles the seat of the pants incidental mindset that's Mm -hmm. haphazard and primarily reactive and the intentional mindset that's anchored in a leader's beliefs and purpose and is disciplined and nimble. He goes on to say, leaders are not consciously settling so much as they're defaulting to learned behavior in the face of unprecedented stress and complexity. So what often happens is that well-meaning people who are promoted into leadership positions, they want to do a good job, but they haven't thought much about what that really means. Or don't have the skill set, the Peters Principle. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So what's the Peters Principle? Talk about the Peters Principle. That's when you have a employee that's doing really well in their job, to give you an example of a factory worker, somebody that's the fastest assembly worker they are always on time they work more efficient they work better faster than everybody else and then the management promotes that individual into a role where they have no skills yet developed for instance they put them in a managerial role Mm. and all of a sudden the factory worker has become a manager of people because they did really good in their previous role and then they fail because they do not have the necessary skills and management makes the assumption that because they were the best assembly worker on the assembly line, they will be a strong manager. And that's the Peters principle. Yeah. And so Doug describes exactly this as he continues to say, quote, without a game plan and in the face of many competing priorities, they end up winging it. Yeah. So these seat of the pants type of leaders, they're not doing a bad job, nor are they intentionally shirking their potential. That's just it. There's often no intention yeah. in their leadership. They're usually the people that were previously performing very well. And to your point, they're not intending to do bad here. They just don't have the necessary skill set 
to deliver on their new role. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so then again, just in a nutshell, he really believed in his people and his approach. Even after people were leaving and he stayed on course, he saw his business as an agent for good in the world and he believed that understanding that was the key to this turnaround. He put people first and he really, really believed that the results will follow. So with that, I think we've got a really good segue to do some reviews. Okay, so we're going to read two reviews today. The first is by GamerGamer2.0000. <laughs> cool username. They say, great show. Informative content delivered in a relatively short period. Perfect podcast to supplement my current rotation. Keep them coming. Love these guys. And we try to make every episode shorter and shorter and shorter, but for some reason it's getting longer and longer and longer. <laughs> so it is part of our goal to make them punchier yes. and shorter. Yes. Thank you for the feedback. That's great. And the next is by Runaway Cow 2. And Runaway Cow 2 said, cool show. I'm not in marketing or business, but I do love interesting history and great comeback stories. I've listened to every episode so far and have yet to be disappointed entertaining and informational. I'd recommend to anyone looking for a good show. Again, thanks so much for the reviews. We appreciate the feedback and please keep them coming. And I hope everybody stays strong. I used to say stay healthy, not stay strong. Stay healthy and stay strong and we'll speak to you guys next week. You've been listening to the Marketing Rescue Podcast. This show is hosted by Nico Katsia and Chad Childress, the co-founders of KPI Agency, a marketing rescue agency. Be sure to visit marketingrescuepodcast.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, contact the hosts, and discover fantastic bonus content.